My name is Anaru Rao. My name is Jana Pach, and this is the Wavemakers Podcast. Te oranga o te taiao, ka ora ai te iwi mo te takitini, kauri mo te toru-toru anake. Huenei ngā kupu o Marama Davidson, to māua manuwhiri te rānei, koia te kaiarahi takirua o te rōpū kākāriki, i wahine toa e tautoko ana i ngā kaupapa nui, pera ki ngā take Māori, te taiao, te tika tangata me ngā āhuatanga o te manaakitanga me te whakawhanaungatanga. E te rangatira no Ngāpuhi, te rarawa, me Ngāti Parau, e hōnore tino nui, tēnei ki te kōrero ki ākui te ranginei, nō reira naumai, ki tō māua pāhotanga, Marama Davidson, tēnā koe. O, tēnā koe, anaru, tēnā kōrua ko, jāna, koutou ko te whānau, te hunga uniana o ētū, nō ku te whiwhi, nō ku te hōnore i tae mai āhau ki te whakawhiti-whiti kōrero, ki te kō rero-rero, kia kōrua, kia koutou i tēnei ata. Kia ora. Kia ora, and mālo lesoi for māua marama. Thank you so much for joining us. So let's get into it. So our first question is, you were born in Auckland and started school in Wellington, then lived in Dunedin and Christchurch. At age nine, your family moved to Whirinaki in the Hokianga, where you spent the rest of your childhood. What triggered the move to Whirinaki, and what were some fond memories growing up there? Oh, beautiful. The move to Whirinaki, to my, to my valley, was actually um, the death of my grandfather. Um, as you might be aware, many of our grandparents' generations took a big move in the 50s from the rural areas to the cities, and particularly to Otara, which is where I have um, now five generations of whānau roots to that special, special community. Um, when my grandfather died, by that point, um, we had severed our connection to Whirinaki physically and my grandfather, his tangi, was the first time ever that my father had, had to go back to that valley and my grandfather lay on our marae, Mātai Aranui, um, of Te Hukutu Hapu. And my father was like, he was an adult and he was looking around and he was like, I belong to this place. These people are mine. This valley is mine. This river is mine, and he immediately um, shifted us up there because obviously he had been living, like many of us, with a real hunger and thirst for belonging to our Tūranga Waiwai. And um, once he realised what he had missed out on, he didn't want us to miss out on it. And being having the rest of my childhood in Hokianga actually formed a lot of the politics and activism that I belong to today especially when it came to connection to Papatuanuku, caring for our rivers and oceans um, and each other as a tiny little rural community. So that was what was behind the move um, and the privilege of growing up in that place is, is really the backbone of my view of leadership, of political responsibility, of kaitiaki, 
of community. So you just touched there on um, some of those uh, green green roots and um, <laughs> importance of te taiao and uh, being surrounded by your whanau and Māori tanga as well. But your parents um, were very strong Māori language campaigners, uh, which you attribute to your passion for te ao Māori. Te reo Māori and tenoranga tiratanga. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about your parents and mm. the they've installed in you oh kia ora. yeah i'm really honored and um, privileged to have been the product literally of two young teenage maori parents who met on the steps of parliament um, and part of that was the uh, pre presenting the petition um, to make maori language an official language and to get more government recognition and support and remembering this is after their parents um, had been traumatised and had had te reo physically beating out of them at school, my grandmother as a young girl. So again, they were grieving that loss of connection to land um, and to language and tikanga. And uh, so they were young teenagers. Uh, they met there and that was activism and I was literally born into that, into that movement, um, which formed um, a lot of my passion for injustice and meeting peace through justice and certainly um, formed an early early understanding of the impact of colonization on my own direct family there's nothing like coming to grips with a topic more than having lived through it and seeing the impact on generations so i i remember my grandmother only as a little girl only speaking to her in the safe little circle of her siblings, the old, old people, they would only speak it to each other in the safe little circle. They would never speak it to us kids. They would never speak it to their children. But when they were out of public eye and in the safe little corner of the house, then I would hear this language and I'd be like, that's beautiful. What is it? You know? And my parents too had that same grief. Um, and so that was what drove their participation in as young young people separated from land language um, and that drew that drove their passion to try and put that right so a lot of us know you as an adult and as a politician uh, but what were you um, like growing up as a, as a young person mm, a little uh, sorry carry on Anadu. just some turning turning points in your life as you were growing up okay um Possibly not too surprising. I, actually, I was really shy, like painfully shy. And I still feel parts of that even now, wanting to be in a corner of the room and make sure that nobody could see me or hear me. Um, and a bit nerdy, I have to say. Um, I had grown up in the theatre, in the back, back rooms of theatre with my father and um, had that privilege of the gift of loving language um, and creativity, I guess it really formed a whole lot of brain development, I think, traveling around the country with um, performing actors um, and a love for, for performance and, and language. And that sort of um, carried over into school a little bit. I was, um, yeah, quite shy and 
liked to read a lot, liked to bloom and study. Actually, I remember that went against some of my parents' more anarchist leanings because I remember my mum, <laughs> she came home from work and I was up all night studying for tests or exams or an assignment or something and she was quite disgusted. She was like, I just don't think it's right that schools should be making young children learn so rigidly in this way. You know, my parents were not about making sure we got to school every day. They were all about the wider education of the world. They would have no problems in ripping us away from school to go on some activist hikoi or some exhibition or attend a play or just go to the beach and you know, be in awe of nature. They firmly believed that the education system has not always been um, nurturing of all of our sensibilities and responsibilities as humans. So that had a big bearing on me as well. They weren't into this whole focus on academic achievement rubbish. They weren't into that at all. Um, and it just happened to be that we were all quite high academic achievers. <laughs> so sorry, mum and dad, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, so, though, and, and being on, and I guess finally just um, pinnacle moments was different points of activism, seeing my, seeing a lot of oppression on my parents as young Māori poor parents, um, uh, dealings with police, being evicted from housing, being poor, um, that shaped, but but actually they were incredible providers no matter what, um, and they we were wealthy by so many other means. We had unconditional love and support, and um, I didn't really know we were poor. It was just life, you know. It wasn't until I grew up. So those were the sorts of I guess um, turning points and experiences that I can remember. Awesome. So one of the main reasons of this podcast is to empower and inspire anyone who may be listening to not be afraid of becoming an activist and realize the power of people and collectivism. Um, and one of the things that we were going to ask you is what ignited your fire to get into activism, but you've answered that um, quite briefly in terms of what you saw uh, your, your parents go through, but is there kind of any? Yeah, there is. Yeah, yeah, because while I grew up with activism and social justice, environmental justice, once I became a young mum, and actually I just was trying to survive for a number of years, um, wasn't directly involved in activism, was too busy trying to be a young mum, trying to study at university, um, and that sort of, I had my head down and, and doing that, and it wasn't until sort of through university and then through my career at the Human Rights Commission after university um, where I became more aware um, and was able to um, shift some of my attention um, to other issues in Kopapa, learned a lot more about the injustices of the whole world. Um, and that's when I became aware of the, the Māori-led movements and Indigenous movements around the world in, in particular. And I remember clearly the Takutai Moana hikoi was heading up Queen Street and I happened to be working in town for that day. And I just joined, I just jumped on, which is not really something you're supposed to do when you're, when you're supposed to be um, in, a, in a sort of public entity job. Um, but the, it just moved me. It just moved me, the collective power of people fighting, fighting for change and justice I couldn't control myself and I found myself not just on the hikoi, but with the megaphone. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, so, I mean, you, oh, sorry, you, you touched on this um, just now about talking about collectivism, but um, you are a founding member of Te Whare Poroho Māori Women's Collective, um, and what I loved when I looked into this is uh, the, the Ropu's kaupapa is wahine Māori comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. <laughs> um, can you tell us a bit more about this Ropu? Yeah. But, also, what was the journey to starting it and how do we create social community groups that are sustainable and create change? And one of the reasons why I want you to talk about what led up to that is there may be someone who is listening that, you know, you, you just spoke about what makes, made you active. So it might be something that makes them active. But how do they actually yeah. get into that? Great question, because I can actually step through the, the, the practical steps and what happened. So the political background is that like if you still today, if you turn on radio, political radio, political TV, um, public commentary in all forms of media, including print media, um, there is a bit of a, a, a starvation of particularly brown women, Māori and Pacific women, young people. Um, there, is a, there is a lack of proper diversity still in political commentary. Every day, these issues were rising. A group of us Māori women would hear things on the radio, see things on TV, and we'd be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know our experience. No one is anywhere talking about our experiences. We actually have some really pertinent political thoughts, opinions, and solutions on the things. And it just so happened that the things that were being raised were impacting on us, you know? Um, things about housing and jobs and income and protecting the climate and water and harbours. It was Māori women at the front line. And yet, where was our political voice in mainstream media and privileged platforms? So we decided to create our own. So a group of us, loose collection is, I think, how we, how we put it. Loose collection of Māori women. Remembering that while we're doing this, we're also, as unions would know, we're also trying to raise children, look after elderly, um, uphold our responsibilities to our hapu and our communities and our broader extended whānau. We're also doing all the other things as well as holding down jobs. So um, a loose collection of women being able to opt in and out of things as we could, as flexibility required, was a way of supporting each other to have a voice. We would write blogs, we would send out our own media releases, it gave us a platform uh, rather than just saying, oh, I'm just an individual and I'd, I have something to say and I'm going to write a press release. It gave us a collective to say, actually, we're a collective of Māori women. We are not being picked up by anyone, so we're just going to make our own noise. And bit by bit, we started getting invited to come on radio, to come on television shows. Our Facebook groups and our Facebook, our social media posts were gaining traction and, and recognition and awareness. We just built our own platform to have a voice that we were largely in control of because one wasn't being given to us. That, that's, that's super interesting. And um, I could completely visualize that. But one thing I really wanted to ask you is, what, what, did, what was the feeling then in creating that group? You know, how did it feel? What did it look like? Yeah, sure. How, how, did, you, how did you know it was going to be sustainable? Oh, we didn't. We absolutely didn't. And, that, and that's the thing. We didn't have a full, we didn't sit down and write up a plan. We were just pissed off. <laughs> um, we were pissed off because we kept getting ignored. But 
but in saying that, we were talking that we're talking about women who had already had experience, and I do relate this exactly to union movements. We were already well aware of the sustainability of movements, collective movements. So we all knew that. We knew that trying to put ourselves out there as individuals and have a say actually also made us more individually vulnerable to being attacked. You cannot withstand individual attacks in the way that you can when you are speaking as a collective, when you know you've got support. Um, and we knew that it had to be sustainable. So we couldn't we couldn't have rigid commitments. We couldn't have rigid guarantees of what we thought we were going to do because actually we, hadn't, we couldn't promise anything. We were just going to take the opportunities when we could. It needed to be flexible enough for us to maintain ordinary chaotic lives. And for that reason, we couldn't put um, rigid commitment plans in place. We basically said, well, I'm pissed off. And we all had different skills and insights on, on, along the activist continuum. We had a, the academics, we had the grassroots, hardcore radicals, we had um, the political sort of um, leanings like myself. We, ha we had a range of skills. And we just said, look, if you can take an interview, when you can take one, take it. And if, we'll just shove the requests around until we find someone who can take it. And we just shared the work as it came up. We wrote things as it came up, often through the hours, between the hours of midnight and 4 a.m. in the morning, because those are free. Um, and we just would do things, support each other to do it, get it out there with the main purpose of disrupting the platform. Yeah. Sounded like you had activated the anger hope uh, action model there to- There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, before you got into politics, you worked at the Human Rights Commission for 10 years. Can you tell us a bit more about your mahi in that area? Yeah, sure. That was um, a, bit, a big step for me. And before, just before the Human Rights Commission, I was working in alternative education with young people, which I loved and which actually gave me the grounding to go into um, community development work uh, at the Human Rights Commission. And I did have a focus on working with young people there. Um, it was basically out in the paddock, out in the field in the community. It was basically um, connecting with community, uh, raising awareness of what people's rights and responsibilities were, giving workshops, um, supporting community-driven projects on the ground, um, being a support person, an advocate for those projects, for the community voice, um, whether it was um, pushing for more support resources, push, pushing for political change. So it was all very, very much uh, another sort of footing in grassroots-driven community development. And I absolutely loved it and was there for more than 10 years. And then after um, all of that, you decided to enter politics. So in June 2013, you stood for the Greens in the Ikaroa Rafati by-election uh, in the rohe that your, your mother comes from. Mm. Uh, what made you decide to, to get into politics? Two questions here. What made you to, uh, decide to get into politics, number one? Mm -hmm. What was that first experience like running mm. office? Oh, let me try and sort of, I'm just trying to write some notes down because I'm trying to split that up. There's some really clear three sort of parts to that. Um, I'll talk about um, the transition from Human Rights Commission into politics. 
um, and then sort of ikarorafati, um, what was that like? They're all connected. So after being at the Human Rights Commission, a public entity for 10 years, as my activism grew, <laughs> it became less accommodating to be able to speak out as a public uh, sector employee, so to speak. And um, it became more and more difficult to be able to maintain an independent political voice while working for a public entity. Um, and in the end, I found that to be quite restrictive. And um, that led me to making a decision, do, do I, what is important to me? Do I want to continue to be restricted by working in a, in a public entity in a way that hinders me from having an independent political voice? No, no, I, no, I can't. So I didn't have a plan of what else to do, but I did leave my job and was effectively unemployed. Now, how the universe ended up designing that <laughs> was it meant that while I was unemployed, um, struggling for, for cash and all the rest of it, uh, and it, um, the by-election came up, the passing of... Um, uh, why Parikura, the passing of Papa Parikura Horomia, um, uh, to which to whom I owe a massive start in my political career, uh, triggered a by-election. I happened to be in my unemployed situation. I happened to be used to scraping for an income. So what that meant is I was more open to continuing to stay unemployed so that I could stand and run in a by-election where you don't get any money to do that unless you come from a wealthy party. And if I often think if it wasn't for the fact that I'd made that decision without a backup plan, not always the best thing to do, to be honest, when you've got a family to, to raise, without a backup plan, wanted to be an independent political voice, I don't think I would have um, felt confident enough to run in a by-election because it would have meant I would have had to lose my income. As it was, I'd already lost my income. And so, I, yes, I stood in the Ikarorafiti by-election. And how that happened was because I had, by, by, by this time, it had started growing a, a little bit of a profile as an activist. I had been speaking out as a political commentator. And the Green Party asked if I could um, join. And within weeks of that joining, only weeks, was when Parikura passed away. So then um, I was shoulder tapped by Materia herself to ask me to stand. So that's a bit of a quick journey, like joining a party and then being asked to stand, not just in general election, but a by-election where the focus is, is, is quite more intense. So that's, you know, I didn't think I was into that. I actually laughed it off when I first got the, got the shoulder tap, sort of laughed it off. But there must have been something within me that, took it seriously because I flicked it off to my father. I flicked the email off to my father and said, oh, look at this stupid materia, fancy asking me to stand for politics, whatever. And my father was like, you must do it. You know, <laughs> what are you doing writing yourself off? You should do it. And that's how, that's how I agreed. That's how the, the rest of the journey, again, another fast journey from being an MP to being co-leader, another one which I did not see myself having to step up to again. Um, but it was driven by myself as a Māori woman, independent activist, the things that I believed in for nature, for people, for um, generational um, outcomes, aligned with everything I had heard and seen from the Green Party. 
And so it was a natural transition to become part of the Green Party whānau. So what was that experience like as a first time? Yeah, oh, daunting. Can I just tell you a quick story? Um, so I'd been, I'd been okay as a Māori woman activist. I was, as an independent activist, beholden to kaupapa Māori politics. It's quite different from being beholden to political party politics. And so I'd been, I'd been quite confident speaking out and on radio and stuff as an independent Māori woman. And then the second I became a candidate for the Green Party, I lost my mojo. I tongue twisted myself and I was like, oh, I have to be something different now. Oh, turns out I don't know any policies yet. Why the hell did I choose to do this? Um, So I just fumbled on radio and to the point where my mother happened to be listening. She's the one from the Kororawhiti. My mother happened to be listening. She was so appalled. She was so appalled. She rang me up straight after. She said, I just listened to your interview. It was terrible. <laughs> she was like, I don't know what's happened to you. You've lost your flow. Holy hickadoodle. So I knew too that it was bad. So we, she made me ring Metedia up immediately for a three-way teleconference so we could sort out whatever the hell just happened. And one of the first things Metedia said to me is, we chose you to be the candidate, not because we think you can rabbit on like a politician and just put out stock standard policy answers. We chose you because you've already got the politics. You've been talking and walking the politics for years now. That's what we want to see from you. And that had tripped me up. That had tripped me up immensely. So immediately, once I got that affirmation from her, I found my mojo again and was able to go back to the grounding of my political um, analysis and apply that to my uh, campaign in Ikarorawhiti. And that's, that was my first um, experience of campaigning. Um, that's an incredible story because actually it's nice for us to be able to reflect. Um, and so even Marama Davidson has a point where, um, you know, she didn't, she was, she didn't have it all, uh, all of her ducks in a row. So, um, you know, oh, that, there are more examples. Let me tell you, <laughs> we're all human. Yes. <laughs> so you just um, mentioned that um, Materia was, you know, she was like a mentor to you, right? She was what yes. made you want to step up into the Green Party. Yes. And then in 2018, Materia Tere was sadly forced to step down. And then, you know, you mentioned you became co-leader of the Green Party. Mm. As Wahine Māori, this highlighted a lot of challenges there are of being Wahine Māori and being in leadership. And uh, those challenges are highlighted by both Materia stepping down and then you stepping up. So can you tell us about this period and the confronting challenges? Oh, wow. That was really confronting and and still traumatizing in in some ways. But seeing the incredible double standards and judgments that were applied to Materia, holy heck. When I think about what, what a bunch of our crop of current politicians have been exposed to be doing, and when I think about that in comparison with what Materia was absolutely hounded for... I mean, I've just had no words. So that, that is an experience that I am always mindful of. And I would actually say, if I'm being really honest, it perhaps even puts too much of a risk filter. On. I'm, I'm, I feel vulnerable a lot to not having my ducks in a row. Um, and it can actually sometimes be a restrictive caution 
because I am aware that people are waiting for my downfall, just waiting any little step. And that has already happened in, in, in different sort of ways. But I know that people are just waiting for that downfall, that I, that I need to work 100% harder just to be seen as um, a little bit less. You know, I'm aware of that. Uh, so that is what it is like. I, sometimes, sometimes I'll listen to an interview that another male politician has done. And I'm like, that was so substandard. Like I would be deeply traumatized if I had done the interview, but I work really hard because I know I'm held to a different level of judgment. Yeah. And that's super disappointing that that has to be that way. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, it, it is. I, for that reason, I am quite honest with people when I say I wouldn't completely endorse this job <laughs> for people <laughs> because um, the, the, the pressures are immense and I worry about people's mental well-being. Um, I am privileged with family support and, and a whole load of privileges and even I really struggle with it sometimes, maintaining and withstanding that pressure. Yeah, and that's a good segue into the next question, actually. So now that you are co-leader of the Green Party, one of the things that so many of us love about you is the way that you are unafraid of talking openly about racism, <laughs> white supremacy as well, and the need for a change in the oppressive systems that we live in. So why is this important to you? And mm. Why should this be more important to others? Yeah. Every big crises that we are all going to have to come to terms with, whether it's climate um, destruction, whether it's environmental degradation, whether it's um, too many people struggling for the crumbs while a few maintain all the power and resource and wealth, and everything along, that, along those broad issues, all of it can be traced back to colonization, imperial agenda, um, obscene capitalism, and at the heart of that includes systemic racism. Colonization is an imperially racist agenda which has sought to steal wealth and lands for the exploitation of people and that land to build the wealth into the hands of a few. And so racism, systemic and casual and daily, um, is, is part of the oppressive um, systemic causes of the big challenges that we are trying to solve. So we cannot solve those big challenges without acknowledging that we need to remove the racism out of the agenda that has helped to drive that um, system failure in the first place. And that's why it's important to name it. It's also important to name it because it has a detrimental harm and effect on people who are oppressed to it. So it's important in and of itself um, to eliminate from our communities, as well as the fact that it is part of the system failure for the big issues. It's all connected. We cannot continue to waste community health and well-being and the health of our people, families and individuals to the harm of racism alongside many other harms. 
And so we need to work together to overcome that. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, um, you know, so we, Anandu and I both work for Etu Union and this podcast has nothing to do with that. Um, but we obviously do very much care about workers' rights. Mm. And so on top of that, how do you think workers' rights and or living wages are tied to environmental justice? Yes, um, there can be no climate justice or environmental justice without workers' rights and without workers leading a just transition. I'm very, very clear of that. While we need to move our way of living towards a lower carbon, zero carbon reality, we cannot do that by replicating the same social hierarchy oppressions. We simply cannot do that. We can't turn everything greenwash while maintaining the same injustices for working people, for low-income households and communities. Um, and if we're not careful, it is working people and low-income households and communities, along with Indigenous people, women, people with disabilities, rainbow and trans people and families, who will bear the brunt of climate, harmful climate impacts, of extreme weather events, of the economic fallout that we are really starting to see. So it means that we have to centre um, uh, equity and justice at the, at the middle, at the start of our climate system overhaul. And workers um, are the way to lead us through to creating the alternative the more modern, long-term, enduring, sustainable jobs. We need to not hammer low-income and working households with the regressive taxes that we are going to have to put in place in some way for the polluting industries. We are going to have to do that. But if we hammer working and low-income people with that in a way that hasn't refunneled wealth back into their homes and into their pockets, then we are not going to bring people with us. People are going to actively resist moving towards a low carbon economy if they are feeling the harm uh, on an everyday living basis. So workers' rights are absolutely key to a low carbon transition. Awesome. I, I really enjoyed that answer. Um, and as I said, we would be remiss if we didn't mention workers', workers rights. In absolutely. It. <laughs> Um, so we did just get very deep into talking about, um, you know, politics and racism. But one of the things that I is, that we think is important to acknowledge is that you're also a mother, that you're a mama of six, and you're also a nanny of one mm. as well. Yes. One of the biggest challenges for us as mothers in, in the activism and leadership space is one, the guilt of not spending enough time with whānau, and the other is how do we keep them safe? So... You mentioned earlier that, you know, you wouldn't recommend the job that you've got. <laughs> and speaking about the things that you've just spoken about, especially white supremacy and racism, would receive a lot of backlash. So two questions. How do you balance your time of being a partner and a mother and a nanny and a politician and an activist? Those are a lot of hats. And what advice do you have for other wahine out there looking yeah. to into these roles? Beautiful. And thank you for allowing me the opportunity to come back to sort of not just leaving it at my rather depressing statement of I wouldn't encourage people to do this job because actually I want to see a more representative house of representatives. I want to see people who have got experience of prison in that place. I want to see 
trans people in that place. We need to see more people with a disability in that place. I, we need to see more people in that place, but we also need to take responsibility for the care of those representatives who are resisting the status quo, who will come up against incredible pressure and backlash, and we need to put collective support behind those people who we put in that place so that when that pressure comes, they've got the support that they need to keep going, that they can get up again. So that's the advice is, while I say it's not something I would encourage, what I'm really just saying is, you, you, you need to have confident, you need to be confident in your support. Times can be really rough on your heart, on your spirit, on your resilience. And we need to put in place the support. So I am privileged with my children, my husband, my granddaughter, our dog, the dog, they all play a part in keeping me solid, you know. Um, and though having those supports in place is absolutely necessary to maintaining that balance. Um, I simply don't have a lot of time with my family, so it needs to become an accepting, you need to accept that you will sacrifice time, you will sacrifice thought, energy. Um, sometimes I just have to hope that everyone's okay because I've got no more thinking space to worry. I have to focus on all the three million other things. And that's another privilege is I can relax knowing that my family are okay because they are supported and that is a privilege. I think finally my comment that you mentioned the guilt, um, Jana, and holy heck, I live with that every day, particularly for my younger daughter who was six when I uh, went into this job just hasn't come to terms with the fact that I'm away all the time and is quite angry about it. I'm, quite, I'm being quite personal here, but I, I, but I don't mind because I, I think it's important, is quite angry about it, knows that she doesn't have a right to be angry at, well, thinks that she doesn't have a right to be angry at me, but is angry at me anyway. And I just need her to know that she has every right to feel angry at me, even though she doesn't want to, and that she needs to feel safe in holding those contradicting feelings. Like I literally, just a few days ago, I came home and I know she misses me. And when she's caught off guard, so she didn't know I was coming home, I came through the door and she was caught off guard. So I saw her running towards me with a smile. I saw her start to run. And then she remembered that she's angry. So she stopped turned around and walked away. And that is just indicative of where she is with not fully feeling comfortable with my job. And that's a guilt that I carry every day. But I also balance that with understanding that in the long term, this has been a massive privilege for my children, for the material and financial support and security it has provided my family, but also for the experiences and for seeing a mum in a rare privileged role of leadership. So I try and remember to that, to cling to that when I'm feeling really mummy. Yeah. Um, and can I just say, I want to thank you for um, making, and as you said, they are quite personal comments, but um, as a mother of a five-year-old who 
you know, is also an activist and does get really busy, that does um, really resonate with me, you know, those, the comments that you made about the guilt that you kind of, that you have for not being able to spend much time with your children, but also being able to have those conversations with them, you know, like, and you're right, the, the being in the positions of privilege as, as a woman of colour and um, a mother. So thank you for that. Kilda. And obviously it's a very busy time for you and some of the other politicians across the country with the election coming up on the 17th of October. You're standing in the seat of Tamaki Makoto and you're asking for the party vote and the candidate vote. Mm. Um, and on top of that, the Greens are sort of polling around that 5% mark at the moment. And um, the question I've got is, what are the Greens' plans in the next few weeks in terms of the campaign trail and uh, how, how's that all going to work out and how do you sort of plan all of that and what happens mm. in terms of the organising? Great, great question. Well, as we're all aware, <laughs> this is a campaign like no other. I know we say that every election, but um, we're also dealing with a global pandemic and for every political party that has really We've had to become a lot more flexible. We've had to all rejig our budgets. Holy heck, an extra four weeks got added and my heart did sink a little bit. <laughs> I was like, oh, it's going to be over a lot later than I would have preferred. However, once we get over that, once we get over ourselves, we then planned, we went back to the drawing board, made sure the budget could stretch, uh, rejigged our public events, uh, make sure that we when we do plan, it's flexible enough to have to change because <laughs> turns out we're not in control. <laughs> um, and so that's what our campaign logistics are sort of looking like. Politically, we know that people want to see a strong, progressive, transformative, transformational government to truly address uh, making sure everyone has enough to live decent lives, to truly address environmental protection, to truly address strong action to leave a, a stable climate and planet. We know that people want the most progressive government that we can have for that. And our uh, message and our focus is going to be on needing the Greens strong for that to happen. And that a strong party vote, Green vote, um, is as much uh, a vote to keeping an oppressive national government out as it is if you were to give Labour your party vote. So that's one of our first sort of, we know we're going to have to get cut through on that understanding, that people need to feel confident that not only is a Green vote um, a vote to resist um, a national-led government which will make environment, inequality and climate change worse, but a Green vote will also make Labour better Labour more progressive, Labour more transformational. And an example is the wealth tax that was just announced. Uh, the Greens wealth tax and tax plan goes much further than what Labour's does. And if we got, got any hope of properly funding public resources, public services, then we need to also increase our revenue. So it's about talking to the communities and to voters saying that it is the Greens that people need to be strong, um, working with Labour, which we have shown we can do, if you truly want strong action across those broad issues. 
Awesome. Marama, you've spoken about um, some, some very big things and um, some very inspiring things. So what we normally do um, to wrap up is go into a quick five questions, which we will. But I just have one final question for you. Um, for any young Māori or Pasifika or, you know, black or indigenous um, activists out there, potential activists out there that could be listening, what advice do you have to them if they would like to get into politics? Beautiful question. I love this question. Uh, my advice is always to really work out what your passions are and then join the collectives that are working on those issues. Um, that it is collective community power that is important and that unfortunately politics focuses on us as individuals. We have to reject that and we have to maintain our connection with collectives whether that's unions, whether that's climate groups, whether that's environment groups, whether that's tangata tiriti and tiriti justice groups, social justice groups, um, poverty groups. Um, join the collective as an individual. Um, give your, make your contributions. Um, be very, very clear about um, your part to play, your role to play in those collective movements. Stay humble. <laughs> Stay humble and always remember yourself as part of a collective. Um, and I would love to see more young Māori and Pacific young people in that toxic place so we can make it better while we are supporting the alternative power constitutional change happening from the grassroots. Kapai, what a way to wrap up. We've, we've got one more uh, segment to this podcast and we just go through a series of quickfire questions. So I've got the first question here. Who do you admire the most? My little girl. Nice. The one who is trying to be strong every day while her mama is away. Keep going. Sorry. <laughs> oh, how could I go next? Okay. Favorite quote? Oh. You can't please everyone. <laughs> Courtesy of Materia Today to me. <laughs> uh, if you could travel back in time, uh, what period would you go to? To my nana, to my nana's time, to be there with her, to be there with her at a time she was being traumatised and beaten for speaking her language and to be there with her as a little girl. What are you currently reading or listening to, such as a book or a audio book? Oh, I love this question. Um, Oware, a new book by Becky Manawatu, and a fabulous Māori woman writer, still making my way through it, talks about all of the issues, many of the issues that we've talked about. Please um, have just happened across, and I've just been interviewed less than an hour ago, by Church, um, who is part of Church and AP, Incredible New Zealand, young Māori Pacific uh, rap artists. Um, Elijah Manu is Church. Um, their music is crisp and sharp and political. And finally, um, can I just put in a massive, massive word for Teeks, Te Karehana Toi, who is actually from Hokianga and has just released the most soul silk album you could ever possibly listen to. Nice, love that. Um, what is your favourite piece of clothing? Anything from an op shop. <laughs> um, I have a jacket, which I still wear today, um, 
10 years down the track um, from, from an op shop, which I'm really proud of. And it's, it's classic and long lasting. You're working around the clock at the moment, but are you a morning person or a night owl? Someone who was up till 2am this morning. Um, I'm definitely a night person. I have to be a morning person because of my job, but I definitely, Marama is of the night and I definitely live up to that. <laughs> right. And final question. You can only eat one food for a week. What is it? It's, it's going to be chicken. <laughs> Covering bases there, I'll go for chicken. <laughs> Yana's uh, favourite quite as well, isn't it? <laughs> Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> oh, definitely fried. Yep. <laughs> All right, Marama, I just want to say a big thank you. Um, we have gone into a lot of different realms in this uh, in this interview, um, from personal to uh, political. Um, and to, to activism and leadership. And so I just want to thank you so much for making the time, especially um, as we've mentioned, we are leading up to an election. This is a very busy time for you. Um, and as you say, you're up till 2 a.m. So it means that you've got uh, a lot on your plate. So thank you again for making the time uh, for, to be with us this evening, uh, today. Um, and we really look forward to seeing all the work that you're doing. Now, Mahi, I want to acknowledge the incredible research and background that you already turned up with, and I really, really appreciate that. And Anadu, you opening with my favourite whakatauki, which I wrote, um, is very special. And what a beautiful conversation um, for us to be having. It's been my absolute privilege to be speaking with you both this morning. Kia ora. Kia mahi nui e te rangatira. Marama, kia hau maru tonoho. Kia Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wavemakers Podcast. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe.